I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Great to be back with you as always. And thank you to everyone who's been sharing the message about what Education on Fire is all about and and those who are supporting us for this sort of child-centred idea of education, whether you're involved as a teacher, an organisation, a company, but whatever you're doing to kind of really make this education system work as best as we possibly can for for every child and, and their individual needs. Now, today I'm delighted to welcome back Al Kingsley, and Al's been a great guest before on the show, um, and we wanted to sort of dive in a little bit more about what he's been up to recently, the way that he's sort of seeing education going forward based on all the events that he gets to speak at and is traveling around the world, but also some of the latest things he's been doing as an author. He's got some fantastic books out on governance, ed tech, and been able to sort of grow as a multi-academy trust. So this is a fascinating conversation, and it's always great to be able to bring sort of the, the latest insights about education and from the wealth of experience that Al has. Now you'd have also heard that I interviewed Al for the Primary Education Summit um, presented by NAEP which is a fascinating conversation about creating digital strategies for schools so do make sure you go and look at that as well that's you can find on my on my blog on educationonfire.com. So wherever you are walking your dog in the gym sat back relaxing really do enjoy this conversation with Al Kingsley. Hi Al, thank you so much for joining us here again on the Education on Fire podcast. It's always great to chat and to to find out what it is that you've been working on and, and the sorts of things that you're helping people with. So yeah, thanks so much for being here again today. Oh, my pleasure. Always lovely to come on and have a chat with you about all the latest challenges and opportunities. So um, take us into that. What have you been working on recently and what's your sort of focus in the, in the sort of over the summer? Um, it's been a bit of a mixture, but um, there's been kind of two main strands, I suppose. There's the natural one that I'm sure we might get onto, which is what's happening in the technology world and opportunities and threats that come with that. Uh, and alongside that, on the back of um, having, you know, very pleased to have some really positive feedback and engagement with my school governance handbook. Um, I've been kind of working and crafting a new guide, which is for schools and multi-academy t- trusts as a growth guide. And I think on the back of the, the white paper that came out and then kind of quietly went away via the school's bill, but actually is still a driver from a government, everybody's still thinking very much about what is that strong and stable multi-academy trust structure? What are government aspirations for growth? And like always, I think whether you're in senior leadership, whether you're in governance, whether you're in the broader community and parental engagement, Everyone's thinking about what are the options, what does that mean for our schools, whether that's about autonomy, whether it's about scale and opportunity. And so I really wanted to take lots of the questions that were being asked of me on the back of the governance guide and and widen the the lens, so to speak, uh, and really craft together not just the challenges and why we're at the place that we are, but really to explore the different options as to how schools can 
move and become part of a multi-academy trust or form a trust or, or trust can grow and really identify the, both the opportunities and also, like most things I try and do, Mark, not always present all the answers, but present the questions you should be asking, the things you should be thinking about to try and make that topic a little bit more accessible for everybody. And I think for me, I mean, the thing that's come across in so many of our conversations is always the sense of, of what those questions are and how it fits in in your world, because there's no one size fits all with different people with different focuses, different sizes of schools, different ideas of where we want to go. And so like I say, those questions really are the greatest starting point to know what those next steps are going to be. Absolutely. And that's something that always resonates loud and clear. I think, as always, the one unhelpful strand that was part of that original conversation was throwing in this 2030 expectation. And, and I all think, always think what we do in our schools, fundamentally, we do things for the right reason, whether it's alignment of vision and values with other schools, whether it's about opportunities where there's definitely a win-win. Uh, thinking of the kind of Sir David Carter model of every school being a net contributor to your multi-academy trust, looking at the opportunities that focus around some of the biggest challenges we have in education right now. So thinking about things like staff retention and recruitment, Actually, scale provides opportunities for staff to progress, but remain part of your trust and your broader ecosystem. And those challenges are all about the right fit at the right time. And a clock ticking is never helpful. In fact, in education, whenever people look at short term solutions, they rarely have long term sustainability and value. So that 2030s kind of been dropped away, albeit the aspiration about scale and strength is still there. And in many regards, I kind of agree with it. I mean, in any organization, you know, you reach a critical mass where there are economies of scale, the capacity that either does the, the really visual things like giving you the opportunity to broaden your curriculum offer, which I'm a huge fan of because I think there's a the narrowing of the curriculum has been a very gradual process and it doesn't align with many of our learners uh, to sustainability under the thing we can never ignore, which is an ever challenging financial landscape for schools. But at the same time, I could say that within our own trust, and I can say that because it's one of our, our variables, um, that we are looking at expansion. But clearly, we wouldn't want to take two or three new schools on at the same time. That would have the risk of not only undermining an effective due diligence process, but also would absolutely risk taking capacity away from our core schools. And the one thing you don't want to do is grow and actually impact on standards at the same time. So pace and fit are really, really important. And some schools have done it for many years, whether it's just simply extending your pan or an age range or maybe adding a specialist hub or extending your provision into sixth form. But now we're seeing this landscape where already, you know, the best part of half of our primaries around the country are part of the academy landscape, nearer two thirds when it comes and beyond when it comes to secondaries. Um, but that's quite different depending on where you are in the country. So there's places in the northeast where it's pretty heavily all local authority still and on the south coast where it's pretty much exclusively academy. And that comes back to that one size fits all. Different places are at different points. Uh, and sometimes the drivers are the wrong way around. They're the negatives. They're the my local authority provision is being diminished and eroded and therefore there's no value there. So I need to look for a new home for want of a better term. A rather clumsy way probably of ex exaggerating it. And then for others, there are groups of schools coming together and saying, actually, we can work together cooperatively and form our own map. We share values. We've got different skill sets across our leadership. Um, and ironically, the biggest factor and driver, whether we like to admit it or not, tends to be at the point where senior leaders retire or move on. It's the change of head at the top of the tree. 
that tends to be the catalyst for a review of whether this is still the right position for our school or whether now's the opportunity for a change. Being open and frank about that, and I think aligning the questions, is very much the same strategy I've tried to do with both the EdTech and the governance side, which is actually if you get everybody around the table who's a stakeholder and you present the kinds of questions and the conversation to be had, every school will draw a different set of priorities and potentially results to that conversation but never underestimate how powerful it is to actually at least get everybody on the same page, having that conversation. And time's been the the one kind of key element that we've all been really struggling with the last few years. So making time for those conversations is, is really important. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, when you're talking about that almost sitting down around a piece of paper and writing all these things out, because I know certainly for me, it's so easy to overestimate what other people's understanding is, even if they're within your sort of cohort of teachers and, and, and staff, because mm. in, in your head, you know what you're thinking, especially if you're, like I say, in the senior leadership. But making sure that not only are just the guidelines and the things that you want to make sure everyone knows and are working to are, are the same, but what that vision is and what you're thinking and the possibilities and, and bringing all the ideas together, like I say, to make that sort of next step together in, in, in sort of is one voice and is one step and I, I think I think sometimes that's harder and, and not as straightforward as people think it might be no I, I I totally agree I also think there's a natural persuasion that we look we look within and we we kind of become our own little echo chamber in terms of we agree with each other because it's an, it's an approach or a view that we've taken for a number of years and we need to remember the strength of any organization, particularly when we think about a multi-academy trust, is that we bring people to the table, skills-based as trustees, as members, as well as our leadership across a broader, potentially, cluster of schools within our map. Um, and we need to make sure that we're actually empowering everybody to share a position based on their own experiences. You know, And sometimes what happens is the conversation comes down to the, what if we get left behind? And it's suddenly, so are we making a strategic decision for our trust because we're concerned all the other good schools are going to join other mats and we'll be left behind? Or are we thinking about actually first and foremost reflecting where are our schools at on that journey? You know, and, and if we look at our schools that we have at the moment and whether we think what's their status, and I, I mentioned earlier the Sir David Carter model, but, you know, have we got schools that are struggling themselves? Are they in stabilised mode, repair mode? Are they improving or are we just trying to sustain high performing schools? Actually, we need to have a, that self-reflection of where we're at, something schools are great at. Every school's going to have its set. We're going to have a clear perspective. But when we're looking at growth, there has to be a purpose. There has to be a purpose that says we're adding value, whether it's capacity, whether it's specialism and skills that are going to be bought into our cluster of schools, whether it's an opportunity for our middle leaders to develop and transport their skills from one school into a new school that's joining our, our, our trust. And conversely, if I'm an LA school, I'm not joining a map because I want charity or I want support, it has to be a win-win. That school's going to bring its own expertise and skills to the table, but potentially it will also benefit from perhaps the central team and that broader resource they've got to support finance and HR and other aspects. So understanding where you're at and what you're trying to achieve is often the shape as who's the right fit for you. Uh, and then suddenly, no surprise whatsoever, we're not in a numbers game of, well, how many more do we need to hit this magic number? It's about, do we think these schools is a win-win for both parties? Do we think this adds to our overall offer? And ultimately, will our children benefit? Will it do something, whether it's make us more cost-effective, make us more flexible, keep the most empowering staff we want within our, our schools? 
Um, so that kind of mindset, I think, absolutely aligns. Let's get different voices. Let's avoid the imposter syndrome that we sometimes have that anybody outside of education couldn't possibly have a view. But, you know, part of growing our schools, looking at the long term for our schools, it is strategic. It's strategic planning. It's um, it's looking at the operational structures. It's looking about how do we actually maximize the way we do things so that we provide the maximum capacity and resource to do the thing that's most important. Um, and lots of mats are doing it. I've been very fortunate to be invited to visit a number of mats around the country and facilitate a workshop with their members and trustees and senior leadership team having these exact same conversations. Now, I'm open and honest enough to say whilst I was leading it, I was also conveniently magpieing ideas that they were sharing because don't we all? But there's there's common themes. There's Every trust at the moment will have common risk assessments when it comes to thinking about recruitment and retention and finance and, and all the things alongside the typical things we would we would naturally expect to find in that risk assessment. And I think the same LA schools are feeling, well, we've been part of a familiar space for a long time, but now our local authority is reduced in terms of its children's services. What's the opportunity next for us? What's the long-term vision? We don't want to be in a position in years down the line where we're forced to make a decision. We want to be masters of our own destiny. What does that look like? Uh, and sometimes, like most things, if we simplify it down to plain English questions and topics to consider, and let's get around the table and, and assess these things, it's much easier to get to a consensus where everyone feels comfortable, even if the answer is, as we are right now, is just perfect. Thank you very much. <laughs> but let's like, say at least you know then at that point. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and and I'm interested, sort of, with all your sort of multiple hats on sort of from your sort of business expertise and you know and, and being in charge of of a company are those sort of transferable skills how, how do they work in in terms of, of sort of the things that are in common and then the difference like you said the fact that we're dealing with um an education system which isn't as straightforward as just making those strategic business decisions but you do have to have that understanding and, and that kind of a sort of direction of, of where you're wanting to go next um, surprisingly, there's an awful lot that's transferable. If we think about running a, a fictitious technology company, I, I won't use my own, but it could be any company. You know, some of the pressures we have right now are financial. We've had a, a difficult period during um, the pandemic that's affected you know business around the world, and that affects any kind of company and all structures. We have the challenge with staff recruitment and retention. The new hybrid workplace means that people can continue to live in their local area, but work for a tech company in California or Mongolia. So suddenly there's greater competition for jobs and places, and in some cases, the other way around, some unexpected redundancies and so on. There's the how do we operate more effectively and efficiently as a business. Now, in a factory, we're thinking about how do we create more widgets at the end of the production line for the minimum cost. In a typical human-based business, we're thinking about how do we get most pro productivity out of the person. So a salesperson, we're thinking about how can we maximize their time and their, their performance dealing with customers and selling software. Well, although it's something far more valuable, thinking about how we have operational efficiency in a school so that teachers have more time to engage with their learners and actually do the important job rather than spending more time navigating clumsy systems or replicating input of data or writing things when they could use an audio note for parents or facilitating better time where they can do hybrid working for parents evenings. All of those things follow through. And as we look at the scale across the country and the majority of schools, 
we have that, as I've explained, that cohort of local authority schools. But even within the multi-academy trust landscape, the majority sit in the SAT, the single academy trust, or the two to three school mat scale. But it's a much smaller percentage, which are the, the big boys. But as we scale, there is always going to be more and more pressure on those, what I would call transferable commercial skills of operational efficiency, systems efficiency, HR and finance efficiency, because the more efficient we are at actually operating the enterprise, the more money we've got and time we've got in the pot to do the thing that's really important, the teaching and learning. Um, so I think they are really transferable. I might add it works both ways. There's a lot of people I meet who go into governance with a mindset of, well, I'm going to share my expertise, full stop. And actually, very quickly, you learn if you get involved in, in governance in schools, you don't just share, but you also learn. You learn lots of the strengths that happen within the education sector that you can take back into the business workplace that adds value the other way around. And, and that's a really important mindset that people need to, to kind of hold on to because it is absolutely a two-way street. But I think increasingly, you know, it's sad in a way that we have an education system where we're relying on external voluntary support alongside putting just more and more pressure on our paid workforce. And there isn't um, extra capacity coming centrally into our education system. But without a doubt, in any organisation, there are always ways to be more efficient. And, and I would argue right now, the most important measure of efficiency is freeing up time, which is where lots of these conversations um, you know, end up being shaped. And you mentioned um, before about sort of the northeast being much more sort of local authority based, and, and the south being being sort of the opposite of that. Is that purely the strength of of the local authority? Is it just the fact that the landscape starts to move, and therefore you sort of get that snowball effect? It seems like a, an interesting distinction. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly from 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 my research, it's not linear. It's not it's not as global as the north is more local authority, the south is more academy. Although maybe. If you averaged it out, it might fall that way. It, it seems very much county by county. There are differences. And because of that, I think it's probably reasonable to draw a conclusion. It comes down to uh, the strength of the local authority provision. But it might also come down to the fact that as soon as you have a number of academies form where they are successful or they are active, um, that can often be the catalyst for others to want to follow suit. Um it is really difficult to, to understand because, you know, much of the benefits that I talk about in terms of the academization process, you know, I'm very much a fan of community, local-based academies where you've got the genuine way and opportunity to share um, capacity and resource amongst your schools. Um, and with that in mind, I'm thinking, you know, there need to be a few miles apart so that teachers, staff, resources can be shared. And sometimes bigger mats fix that by having hubs in different locations so they can still have that local bit. But if you're in a large county where you've got a large swathe of rural schools, that becomes much harder to actually do. Those economies of scale don't change. If your primary schools are 40 miles apart, you're not going to be sharing TAs or the receptionist at the front of the door or the site caretaker or many of the other resources. Um, and so it's different. There are also parts of the country where clearly there's a much stronger diocesan um, bias where you'll see a lot more of the schools are aligned with the church and our faith schools. Um, again, I think what it represents is that context that actually I can see many mats in my own local area, very different student and community cohorts, very different history and approach to delivering. There is so much breadth of diversity and change in the structures that we have. Again, that really reinforces my point of view where this kind of mindset of 
we need to be at a certain size full stop is just too narrow and prescriptive. It's got to be right for everybody. Um, and I'd much rather see um, schools coming together, multi-academies trust growing, where it's more about a discussion around trajectory than about finite numbers and scale. It's, you know, there's that anecdotal seven and a half thousand students, 10 schools. Well, in a city, large secondary schools, you can get those numbers quite quickly on student cohort. But if you're a cluster of rural schools, you've got a long, long way to go. And many of those schools are certainly much more financially challenging as well as retaining the cohort. Well, I don't, I don't want to see our schools measured on pure numbers because many of our rural schools are there to serve a much broader community purpose and opportunity um, than simply do they look viable on paper. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of, of, of your book, I'm, I'm curious mm. in terms of how how's the, the response been to it in terms of it? Is it a way of people being able to have these conversations with themselves through you in terms of what you've been able to share and, and exchange um, without, like say, having to be in a workshop or or kind of being face-to-face? -face, or is it a little bit sort of broader than that? Um, I have to say I'm quite lucky. Um, last year, when I brought out my, um, my school governance um, guide, one of the things that came from that was an opportunity to speak at lots of different events about it, the content, and how it was trying to skill people up making governance accessible, making those conversations around the key pillars we should be thinking about in terms of our schools. And that became the catalyst for people asking questions afterwards, which was, but what about the current context? What about growth? What about scale? How do we think about those things? Who would you recommend we look at? What other mats would you recommend as a template? And naturally, there's lots of mats I could recommend as a template. But who says that template would be right for you? And I'm not one for saying you should follow X, Y, or Z. Quite the opposite. It's I want you to understand the questions they thought about when they came up with their strategy that's resulted in what you see now. Um, so because there was lots of questions facilitated from it, that kind of helped shape for me a little bit about the kinds of topics that I needed to focus in on. Um, and that included not just thinking or reflecting about where you're at now, thinking about the opportunities for change and growth, what the different strands were. And again, some counties, there's lots of investments on the free school program for specialist schools. Um, in others, the free school program was quite active. It's gone a bit quieter, latest wave. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a pot of money there. I think the, the current wave 14, there's something like 60 applications and probably 15 will, will get approved. Um, there's so many other variables that actually unpicking it um, was the key. But then, like always, people are always like, well, I, OK, we can get the context. But what are the kinds of questions that I should be asking? So what I tried to do was reflect both on the current challenges, the things that are best practiced in terms of doing a due diligence and thinking about that, that challenge, but also being mindful of what I've done myself, both being successful in a number of free school bids previously in previous waves and building new a new secondary, new primary school, and also having new primaries come and join our map where we've undertaken that, that due diligence process to actually look under the covers at the school, its finances, its physical estate, um, making sure we've got the right alignment of values. Is it a good fit? How will we make sure that staff feel reassured as part of that 2P process? Just trying to unpick it all. Uh, and I always come back to that kind of mindset of sometimes we get a bit carried away with the language and we get too technical and we try and make it some really complicated process certainly if you get your solicitors involved in a school transfer into a, a mat it's a it's a lengthy process and a complex process 
But actually, for the people around the table, it doesn't need to be. They're plain English conversations and questions. If somebody gives me a quest, you know, a checklist, I often use good old Donald Rumsfeld as my example. It's, you know, we can all Google stuff, but it's not the, the known knowns. It's the unknown unknowns that's the challenge. And you can't Google and find a list from somewhere of questions to ask if you didn't know you needed to ask the questions. So lots of signposting. And I think it really follows on. So you've got one guide, which is about how do we get the most out of our governance within our schools, whatever the shape and size of the school. And then the second, which is now moving on to a slightly broader strategic thinking, how do we both assess where we're at at the moment across our schools and how that might shape our next steps for growth moving forwards? And one half naturally feeds into the other because if I'm at a point right now where there's lots of challenges and capacity needed to support my current schools, then clearly right now is probably not the time to be adding to the mix. Um, conversely, there might be a pressure point where another school with a particular set of skills or experiences or simply capacity would unlock both for that incoming school and your existing school's opportunities to grow quickly. And I love that idea of the solicitor. It just reminded me of buying a house. It's that kind of, it's incredibly complex and incredibly important, but often it's just a sense of you've done your due diligence. You know where you want to live, why you want to live there, and all of those things that have gone into the mix. And then you you go and look at somewhere, you get a feel for it, you know it's the right thing, you check it out, and then the rest of it is complex. You know, you've got solicitors involved and you've got surveys and all the stuff that goes with it. But the people who were there, one the person selling and yourself, often think, this is it, this is the way forward. And as we know, it doesn't always work out as straightforward as that. But I think that, like I say, that the starting point is actually very straightforward and, and a sort of a good sort of feeling idea. Absolutely. And that that's always been my ethos. I think the best way you make any conversation in education, whether in previous books around technology or whether it's in governance and growth, um, if you want to make sure that everybody is able to contribute to the conversation, you need to structure the questions and the language in a way that's accessible to everybody. You know, frankly, it's no different to what we do in the classroom, wearing a different hat and focus, but the same applies for our leadership, which is, let, let's not, you know, I don't write books to try and demonstrate how much I know about a topic because there's always somebody who knows more than you. Um, I try and keep it simple. Um, they're not quite idiots guides, but they're very much meant to be Let's make it accessible, and in doing so, we'll all learn something from it. And that, I think, feeds back really nicely. Like we said, getting around the table and having that blank piece of paper. So often it's just bringing all these things together so that you've got a coherent idea, like, say, list of questions, a conversation that you can go through, which is just, oh, now we know where we are. We have a blueprint, even if it's only a thought blueprint, in order to take you on to your next step and understand where you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. So exciting times. And I'm really looking forward. That's that's due out the back end of June. So um, fingers crossed for that. And tell us a little bit about some of the in-person stuff that you've been doing recently. Of course, you know, we're still post-pandemic and people are kind of mm. um, still a little bit wary, but it, it does sort of feel that the world is is opening up and people wanting to to spend more time together and, and getting that sort of in-person interaction which i think we have all missed and, and there's a, a great benefit of yeah i mean i've been very fortunate i get to get an opportunity to, to to go and have a ramble and amuse at all sorts of different venues so over the last few months um, i was speaking at an event in dubai i was chairing a discussion around the metaverse and opportunities that sit around that and lots of us talk about you know, the concepts of virtual reality often think about Meta and think of Facebook and others, but the opportunities that tie in with ex extended reality, XR and robotics and STEM learning and those kind of opportunities, 
um, at BET, which is not that long ago. I was involved on a panel where I'm co-chair of a work stream with the Foundation for Educational Development and the OECD, looking at their future measures for high-performing school systems. So many will be familiar with the PISA rankings, taking that snapshot across those key academic measures for 15-year-olds and building our international league tables of high-performing school systems. Um, and in a very positive step forward, they're now looking much more for measures around um, education systems that promote human flourishing. And that human flourishing means not just the academic in terms of those core um, subjects, but much more focus on skills, cognitive skills, critical thinking skills, digital skills, uh, resilience, um, the, the broader self, which is very timely with our challenges around SEMH in our schools, but even down to measures of how we instill in, in our children that ability to understand a sense of wonder and awe. When we look at a fantastic landscape or a, a beautiful painting or a piece of music, where do we get those measures from? And the skills bit really is why I got involved, because apart from one of those strands being around digital skills, an area of, of, of my expertise, something I've, I've been talking about a great deal over the last few years and, and hopefully a few people are listening and I'm sure I know there are many others sharing a similar view you know I'm a firm believer that our, our educational system continues to be and has been for many years too focused around the the retention of core content and the testing process is not particularly equitable for all of our learners when we think about our GCSEs and A-levels particularly um, and that actually increasingly we need to be thinking about those skills that the workplace now requires us to have. Um, and the workplace has had a seismic shift in the last two years, you know, away from the, the manufacturing and the hospitals. If we think about the traditional offices around the, the world and the country, it's hybrid, it's digital skills, it's online interaction and working. The number one things employers are looking for for, for people, their new graduates coming into their organizations, are their communication skills, their relationship skills, their critical thinking skills, their resilience. Uh, and those are dominating the skills we want in our future workforce. So as schools, we've got not just an opportunity, we have no choice but to respond and react to that. So lots of what the OECD is looking at is really understanding how, um, not we just cross a finish line at 15 and say, well, how well did this school system do than another? But did our learners actually end up with a love of learning? Were they happy, resilient, well-rounded learners as well? Um, and I suppose we can then exaggerate to effect and say, do we score number one on the international education tables, a school system that makes all our children sit in silence in rows seven hours a day to remember key data and facts to be tested upon? Or do we measure one where children have free-flowing play and activities and engagement and a wide variety of skills are measured and valued just as much? You know, whether it's music and sports and the arts alongside those core subjects. And of course, the, the, the right place sits somewhere in the middle in terms of we need that breadth of skills. Um, so that's something that I'm really passionate about. Maybe by me rambling on, I've given that away, that it's something I think is really, really important conversation when we're looking at our future education system and sadly right now when we look at all the pressures in the UK education system um, particularly in England again with recent changes to um, Department for Education I feel we've almost taken a slight step backwards again where the the opportunity to unlock the power of digital and technology and skills 
has kind of been paused slightly with a change back to, you know, our priorities are getting our school system, trying to look at the costings and funding of it uh, and um, making sure we promote further mathematics skills. Well, mathematics skills is great, but I'd much rather be teaching how to calculate the APR on a car finance for young people rather than trigonometry or matrices. Uh, and lots of these things are, are about... I might add, I don't know where all the maths teachers are coming from because last time I checked, we're all struggling to recruit for our current role. You get the gist. There's this broader challenge, isn't there, about stuff's got to be fit for for what we need in, as as adults. It, um, and I don't think at the moment the education system is quite fitting much. So teachers are trying to squeeze that in around their statutory responsibilities. Yeah, well, I think that's that's a really important way of putting it is that they're trying to fit it around like you're saying until it's not fitting it around and it's an integral part of what we well people in the education system know is important you know and as a musician myself you know i can't think of anything more important than the arts in terms of my life from a career point of view and mm. a, and a human point of view i wouldn't have had that opportunity had that not been given to me when i was in school so, i mean from those conversations that you've been having like you said do you see a solution uh, they're sort of small things that are happening that you think the future could be brighter than maybe people are, are thinking at the moment or is it like say i guess it's a country by country place yeah. and a political sort of standpoint as well it is a country by country and we have to be mindful that there are different countries of different sizes that have got different barriers to how quickly they can pivot and change you know, we can look around the world, and, and for many years, the, the Finnish educational system was held up as being one that was, a, a, you know, the gold standard. Estonia, back in 2012-2013, brought digital into it as a core part of the curriculum from a very early age. Uh, lots of it becomes how receptive we are. I think the challenge we've got in 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 England, particularly, is we've got we've got a a curriculum that has frankly remained largely unchanged for decades and decades and decades. It was that. Um, I remember listening to a, an interesting presentation from Sugata Mitra, you know, where ultimately our education system was built around those core numeracy and literacy skills that were built during the Industrial Revolution and were the foundation of the of the British Empire, where you could be educated anywhere in the Empire and the Commonwealth and have those core skills. I mean, you could be dropped into an office anywhere and you'd have that kind of standard set of educational skills. Well, you know, Thankfully, the world has moved on, life's moved on. And actually now those that focus on those core skills doesn't allow room in the pot. We can't, we've got to tip something out of the glass before we try and pour something back in to make sure that we can think about skills-based training, uh, the digital skills and the digital citizenship, that ability to not just know how to access information, but to challenge its validity, to, to make sure that we keep ourselves safe online, to think about data privacy to have the ability to unlock the potential of the new technology that we're encountering. And if we don't, our learners will leave school at 16 or 18, unequipped for the workplace that is heavily built around those digital tools that unlock that productivity, efficiency, operational aspects that we've we've already talked about. There is a will. I mean, the work that the, the Foundation for Educational Development doing, building together a long-term plan for education, um, has so many experienced stakeholders from all different strands contributing into it. The barrier we have, and it's no great shock or surprise, I think, is unfortunately is the political structures that we have within the country. And it's not unique to, to the United Kingdom, unfortunately. 
But typically what we need for education is a long-term plan, a long-term change to the way that we structure our curriculum, our measures of how successful, how well schools are performing. Um, And unfortunately, counter to that, we have an electoral cycle of five years where typically ministers come and go and anything a minister puts their name on either needs to be something that is an absolute, absolute sure guard win or it needs to be something that they can implement and get measurable results for within an electoral cycle because it will help them when it comes to re-election. And what nobody really has an appetite for is doing something fundamental and anything that involves big change is a risk and it's challenging but no one's willing to do that and put their name on it if they're not going to have the the potential for the win at the end of it and this is about long-term change this is a 10-15 year cycle within education so in a way it's a decision that needs to be taken away from politics this is too big for politics it needs all party agreement that we need to change the system we need to repurpose and refocus our priorities at the moment we get drawn into conversations about how much we value people working in education, our teaching staff and and our support staff for that matter. We we get drawn into the broader funding landscape of education. Um, We get get drawn into the political discussions around how do we measure a successful school, the Ofsted debate that we have at the moment and how narrow that is. And it resonates with me because I go back to the conversations. Hang on, around the world, we've got all these high-performing school systems and stakeholders involved in how do we measure a future high-performing school system, of which England is one included in the conversation. And then I think, how many of the measures we would look at in that school system for human flourishing would you encapsulate in an Ofsted visit of one or two days? And the answer would be very few, frankly, because actually the things that are most important about the value that schools are adding, I don't think an Ofsted inspection really can give you all the answers to. So we're almost being drawn again into the short-term fixes, aren't we? We're being drawn into the what are the pressures now, and what that always means is the long-term things get put on the back burner. And we've been doing it for decades. So we're looking for somebody bold in government to say, actually... I I agree this is bigger than one political party, one electoral cycle. Let's have a look how we can do that. Or we find, better minds than me, ways to break down that change into chunks that allows successive parliaments to to build on the, the foundations of each stage, get a political win, but at the same time move the dial. And I think the thing that I've never quite been able to fathom is the fact that, as you quite rightly said, the system was created with a, a real purpose because we needed these this sort of learning, these sorts of skills to make it work for our workforce at that time. So if we take everything that you've said, um, as like you say, relatively current because we're in this sort of ongoing cycle, and we even step back to the time when, you know, sort of mass education started, if we start from the same starting point, then this system would look different because like you say we have companies and businesses that are crying out for certain skills we know that would help the economy we certainly know it'd help the well-being of our of our children and the people working within education and it doesn't seem like such a big deal like say apart from the fact that we have these time constraints to actually think well this would make sense to all the things that you said which would be a positive thing within the education system it's a bit of a no-brainer i think we would start from there if we could sort of have that conversation far enough back 
as in this is where we want to go forward, not from where we are now, but from what we actually need now going forward. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I've never really heard an answer to that other than, yes, it's that's probably what we should be doing, but we've no idea how to ha how to put that marker in the sand, really. You know, sadly, the information is there. One of the other hats I wear is I chair the Employment and Skills Board for our, for our region. And one of the bits of data that comes through on an annual basis is their LMI, Labour Market Information. And so not only does there a wealth of information across each region about the skills that employers are looking for, where there are deficits in individuals and, and availability of workforce, which is fundamentally linked to government aspiration of the best way to grow our national wealth is to grow through economic growth. Well, businesses can't grow if they can't recruit people. Um, and alongside that, we've got that second focus, which we've rightly had lots of focus on, has been about place base around our country, about the economic divide, the, the, the limits of opportunity for, for, for young people and for adults, depending on where they are in the country. Uh, and suddenly, in almost like a seismic shift over a few years, we've moved to that point where, well, you might be educated in this county, you might be working in a maybe a former mining town that when you leave school and the jobs previously would have been two or three key employers in your in your town but now with the right skills you can work online and work for anybody anywhere or you can access online courses to develop your your your, your academic credentials uh, and your skill set it's changed to the conversation we were having two or three years ago but all of those key building blocks that allow you to unlock that change are built around a premise that we will change in some shape and form our educational journey to equip people with those digital skills, those cognitive skills, those online researching skills, the tools they need to allow them to unlock that opportunity. And so ironically, we're now talking about the opportunities that are there, but we seem to keep missing about how we empower young people to actually grab them. And um, and I guess AI is probably part of that in some ways, isn't it? I mean, I, I have limited experience of it so far, but it just seems to me that people seem to be concerned about the way that may well present problems. But yeah. all it's doing, from, from my, my understanding very much, is it's giving you a version of what you could have found out yourself, but organising in such a way that you then have it there ready for you to use immediately. And like you say, that is just the next step forward of, of what we already had from doing our own Google search and collating all the information and, and putting it into one place. And like I say, if we're not having those conversations and teaching people how to use that for the best practice and then saying, is this actually factually true? Is it something I want to present as my my work? Is it something I want to present as something which I think has been supportive? Then it really does become a minefield of <laughs> of um of of not understanding how the how society is going to grow going forward, which is probably the people's biggest concern for the moment i think like everything in life um a, a fear of understanding something tends to be the catalyst we talk about ai we talk about the new technology that's becoming available at a super accelerated rate and for many not comfortable or familiar with the concepts or the implications it creates a natural sense of fear and and there's two responses to fear you can either stick your head in the sand and say that's not for me or you can say, I need to understand and find out more so I can make a form, an informed decision. And we're seeing the education sector, like the business sector, many are on the front of that wave, keen to get involved and discover. And like all things, you know, first solutions aren't the best always. There's a, there's a journey of refinement. Um, but what we're seeing is AI that's been around for quite a while, 
becoming much more visible. And probably the, the area we say in the forefront more vis um, visible is under NLP, natural language processing, where we're able to, as a machine in effect, understand written or spoken text and use that to actually perform tasks, whether it's speech recognition, uh, summarizing what you've asked, or actually going away and, and reflecting on sentiment. And so the chat GPTs, the bards of this world, do the bit that you that you reference rightly there, which is ask a question and it will go away and, and give me the information that would save me quite a lot of Googling or binging. In truth, it goes much beyond that because not only can it do that, but it plays very heavily back to those key skills, which is much like in the early days of learning basic computer programming, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you write rubbish code, you get rubbish programs. Well, if you ask rubbish questions, you get rubbish answers. And never has that been more important when it comes to understanding how to get the most out of AI-based tools. But beyond that, we're seeing AI moving into the creative space. Now, one of the things with anything that's using um, artificial intelligence, behind the scenes, there's fundamentally some key drivers. There's there's one, the, the algorithm, the how are we supposed to interpret. Number two is that those data sets, the bigger the data set, the more accurate, the more, more detailed and, and nuanced the response we can get. And so not only is that through a period of evolution, but we're also getting in some areas not just the Googling things you could have found yourself, but the creating things that didn't exist. Um, now, that's both an opportunity and for some a fear. So if we have a question of um, create an image of Al st stood on the top of Mount Everest, there are tools that will create an image of me stood on the top of Mount Everest. Well, I might want to put that on my Facebook page and say, aren't I clever? And we can all decide whether that was a silly thing to do. But of course, there is concern about how that could be used to create other types of imagery that people might not check the validity of and understand the context of. I would say the opportunities far outweigh the risks, but I'm not dismissing the risks in any sense at all. I think anybody who's involved in in technology and looking at AI at the moment are looking around quite a few kind of key areas. The, the first we've already touched on, which actually is about the broader governance of the tools we're using, data privacy, security, safety. So particularly in the education space, we don't want young people ideally using tools that aren't going to provide resources and answers and context within the realms of age appropriate and, and safe content. There is also an onus on those developing AI tools to have that, that validity about replicating outcomes and making sure that there's um, the right kind of performance, but also the avoidance of bias. And bias has been a really big one, whether it's in terms of um, the data sets and how that might skew the answers back. That's like, to me, a big, a big accelerator from what we looked at when we were talking about Brexit or the US elections, where on social media, depending on what echo chamber of peers you were in, you were getting information presented to you and prompted to you on the basis of previous searches that, that came with bias, and, and that can shape people's perceptions. There's a bigger one, which is, this is continuing to happen when it comes to digital of anything, which is about accountability, social responsibility. And so there's a natural persuasion, again, to think of all those things and think, well, this just sounds like a bad idea. Um, 
the kind of reality check is it's, no one's got a choice in this. AI's been here for a while. Uh, Moore's Law always talked about how technology got twice as fast every year and, and half the size. And, and AI has exploded over recent years. In fact, I saw the CEO of Google in an interview earlier uh, this year saying that the, the latest range of AI and what we're seeing now is just the, the precursor to what we'll see in 12 months' times is more significant to mankind than the invention of fire. Now, you might say, well, perhaps he's biased because that's a lot of the work they've been doing. But the reality is we don't get to pick. You know, we've been happily chatting away to Alexa and Siri and others without ever questioning or worrying about, ad, well, where's that data going? And, and how did it come up with such an adept answer? And, and oh, I was asking about this particular brand of goods. And the next time I went on social media, there was an advert for it. We've been using data in, in this way. Um, I think there's a huge amount of responsibility on social media platforms for that separation between children and adults, um, which needs to be policed. There needs to be much better regulation. Um, I've been arguing for a long time that the best tools for schools are where the data sets and the resources are built specifically for schools with age-appropriate measures and tight privacy laws in terms of student information and where that's stored, um, which I think at the moment there's still grounds for concerns over. But the opportunity to revolutionize the way we work, there are some amazing resources already being shared for teachers where they can massively reduce their time on lesson planning and follow-up resources and stretch resources using tools like BARD and ChatGPT, all about having really, really tight and specific questioning around topics, not to replace the teacher doing any work, but to do the legwork for a teacher to then nuance and shape. And if we think about the pressures that are on our workforce in schools, alongside just the same in business, then the truth is technology is going to be used more and more and more. I would argue it's exactly the same as concern about school systems. When someone says to me, why are you a school governor, Al? The answer is, well, I knew with new schools being opened in our area, it was important that there was as much support as possible. I felt the best way to shape and get involved, roll your sleeves up, and then you're part of the conversation. The same applies when it comes to AI and the new wave of digital tools in our schools um, and in life in general. Um, you can't put your head in the sand. You've got to make the effort to actually unpick, try them, get the context, see what's right for you and what's wrong for you. And I think that, I mean, that's a key theme so often in these conversations is the fact that it's there's a whole area of grey, isn't there? You can have either either sort of end, which is this could look like this, this could look like that. But the reality is, is that for everybody, there's going to be a massive middle ground where you just have to be the grown up, as it were. And hence the reason for looking after children, you know, making sure that you can take on these decisions, take on the information and put it in its best way. And I think for me, um, earlier, you mentioned um, VR and that kind of thing. I know, mm. certainly, I think it's the day actually, when I think it's episode 341. I was chatting to Joss about um, Remio, and they were talking about having these sort of um, virtual classrooms, but immersive virtual classrooms, because it's all very well having a face-to-face -face kind of Zoom kind of meeting or Zoom kind of classroom, but the ability to have social interaction where you're able to talk within a classroom like a traditional setting, hang out and play basketball, do all those sorts of things, you know, that's cutting-edge technology that's actually being more human than some of the, the, the physical interactions that we're having. And I think, like I say, depending on your, out, uh, your outlook of those things, I think that's a really exciting thing that can benefit many more people than it's going to harm. When everybody talked about Meta under the you know the Facebook parent company Meta and their focus on the Metaverse, 
I think we all rightly draw this kind of concern about well, it's going to be a you know a scaled up walk around Facebook, and is that the right place for learning? But if we take the context of that that extended reality experience in the metaverse, and we think about just as you shared that example there, where we have our avatar in a virtual space that allows us to wander through a door and experience the Amazon rainforest or the pyramids in the deserts or interact with activities with our peers. And it's within a safe space where the resources are curated and age appropriate. Again, we unlock that barrier that some children, depending on where they are in the country, don't get access to the same museums, the same natural resources as others. Um, where it gets more nervous is when that becomes a place that's commercialized. And when you're walking through those doors, there's an advert for a new brand of footwear or a new brand of whatever resource. And that's where I think there is always going to be that natural pull that says, whilst these resources will happen, and as always, you know, demand will be the driver of whether there's investment and further growth. There's still a really strong argument for trying to make sure that we look for evidence specific evidence informed education solutions as well um, but already i'm seeing some great tools coming out for that you know one of the things i try and do wearing another one of my hats as chair of the british education suppliers association's edtech group is flying the flag for new co-produced solutions with educators and schools that are developed specifically for learners that unlock that new potential and again these are all things that compete frankly with a government policy of same old same old but what we want is innovation and ironically if you're outside of the uk we are seen in the uk as being one of the leading creators of edtech and innovation around the world and yet within our home nation it's something that tends to get slightly less visibility from a governmental point of view well I mean, as always, it's absolutely fascinating to chat to you. And I think the thing that I, I love the most always is the fact that no matter which strand of education we take and, and the the kind of ideas that we have, I think it's the people in that connection, which is always at the heart of everything. And it's the conversations, the people you're working with, the people we're trying to support with education and how people are coming together, which is, is key for our growth, but also sort of key for certainly um, the learning of everyone within our schools. So yeah, thank Absolutely. you very much for your time. Thank you so much for the conversation. And just tell people where they can go to find out more, certainly in terms of the book, but in terms of somewhere you'd like them just to, to find out more information about what you're doing. Um, you can find out lots of things I'm doing wearing different hats at, not particularly surprisingly, alkingsley.com. You can find me at netsportsoftware.com. In terms of my books, um, if you have a quick Al Kingsley at, um, on Amazon or on John Cat Education, you'll find my books on EdTech governance and growth. Fantastic, Al. Thank you so much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.